Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. You are very welcome to the, this webinar with the Whitaker Institute here at the National University of Ireland in Galway. We're particularly excited to welcome you uh, in the traditional Irish manner, Cade Mila Falcha, 100,000 welcomes. And we're excited and delighted because social marketing is turning 50 years old this year. And as part of our celebrations, we are going around the world and talking to renowned social marketing experts about their work and about what's happening and about our future and what our future in social marketing and behavioral change work looks like. And to kickstart that, no better place than down under in Australia with two esteemed social marketers. Um, I'm particularly privileged and honored to welcome Professor Maria Rassia and Professor Sharon Rundle-Teelich. Both are going to talk to us about social marketing and wide scale behavioral change. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Maria and welcome her and invite you to sit back, relax and enjoy. Wonderful. Thank you very much for that beautiful introduction, Christine. It's an absolute honour and a privilege um, to be joining you all this evening or this morning, wherever you are. Um, so my name is Maria Rossidi. I'm an Indigenous Australian. I'm from uh, descendant of the Kalkadoon, Thanquith, Bulgaman people. I'm also a professor of marketing here at the University of the Sunshine Coast in sunny Queensland. Um, and what I also do is I'm also the director of a newly formed centre for the Indigenous and transcultural research that we're doing. So this will come through in my discussion tonight. Towards the end, I'll start to talk about how there are lots of knowledge systems and how as social marketers, as we evolve to this next level and move beyond our 50 years, that we start to think of new ways and new knowledges that we can use to advance what we do as social marketers. Now, you'll notice on the title that it mentions that I'm a adjunct fellow with the National Centre for Student Equity and Higher Ed. So just to explain that, um, my passion point or my um, social marketing topic of interest that I've had for many decades actually is around educational inequality. So I've built quite a program of research in this space with grants, research students and working at the national level and influencing policy change in Australia around providing opportunities for people from all walks of life to attend university if they wish. So I'd like to talk about tonight, the title of my presentation is Agents of Change or Agents of the System. And I think as we are now at the 50 year mark, it's an important point to stop and reflect. Are we really who we think we are? And to stop and take stock about what we are trying to achieve as social marketers, but who we are professionally and who we present ourselves to be. So as Christine indicated there, social marketing has come of age. Oops, tick to the next slide. Social marketing has come of age. So we're a legitimate discipline. We've built a wonderful sort of stock of knowledge based on empirical evidence of ways that we can make a difference in the world for other people as well as for ourselves for the greater good. We're rapidly expanding horizons. We're looking at a whole range or plethora of different types of social causes that we wouldn't have looked at a couple of decades ago. But what I'm doing in this presentation is it's a little bit different because it's a bit provocative. It's about holding the mirror up to ourselves as social marketers. Now, why this matters is I think that, and much of this first part of the presentation is based on observations over time, is that sometimes I think we're not really clear about who we are as a profession or where we fit. And sometimes that comes down to understanding who you are and your position, your privilege and the power and how you bring this into play in your professional work. So look, this presentation is different. It is daringly provocative. There will be some questions through it that might raise your eyebrows and that's, a, that's important because that's actually the intention. The intention is to bring into the light things that are in the shadows, to ask yourself questions or ask you questions that you can reflect on. For example, have you done a, a social marketing intervention that's actually caused harm? And what did you do about it? Are you building a career based on the misfortunes of others? So 
that's just a bit of a taster of how I'm gonna frame this because I think we're at a critical point in the development of the discipline. And for those of you in the audience who are emerging social marketers, it's important too that you start to ask yourselves these questions about your professional narrative. So look, the presentation tonight is about disrupting the um, sort of politics of politeness. I think sometimes we, we're very polite and there are things that are unsaid. And the whole idea of being provocative is to spark some awakenings. And this is where we can grow as a discipline as we enter our second 50 years. So observations over time that I've made is that there's many identities of the social marketer. It's not quite clear who we are or why we do what we do. But what I've noticed is there's this growing rhetoric around, who, around being a hero, being a change agent, about being benevolent. And what I'm gonna do is question that. So I'm going to present to you a few sort of observations that I've made over time. So one of the things as social marketers is increasingly we see ourselves or refer to ourselves as in the title, as rebels uh, with the cause, as we're hackers. We're out there to make a difference in the lives of others. We're holding a mirror up to our program participants. We're doing an audit on their lives and saying, look, these are ways that you can change your life. We wanna hold mirrors up to the systems, those invisible systems around us that, that create inequity and inequality. So we've got this growing rhetoric and we see ourselves as hackers. But the question is, is have we actually looked at ourselves and are we really hackers? Are we just believing what our own, you know, professional narrative? And as social marketers, have we become grant chasers who are all care and no responsibility? And are we in fact serving the system that we think we're hacking? And so there's some really deep questions there because I think sometimes we move through our professional activities and daily lives without stopping and taking our pulse and saying, why are we here and what are we doing? So the term hackers has many different meanings. Um, social marketers, if you ask them who they are and what they do, they'll often describe themselves as benevolent, as critical and creative thinkers who are looking for weaknesses in the system where they can make a positive behavior change. We see ourselves as hackers, as being improvisers, as being able to creatively bring together different um, resources and techniques to bring about positive behavior change in people's lives. But sometimes the word hacker means that we're over-promising or slightly inflating on what we actually can do. Can we really bring about sustained behavior change? Are we over-promising and under-delivering? Are we just using the same co-creation tools without exploring other methodologies? So when we look at the theory and, or the work around hackers, particularly from the computer sciences, they organize hackers into a number of different groups based on old Western films. So they have the white hats, the black hats and the gray hats. And so the next part of this presentation, you'll see I'm going to start talking about the white hats first. Now, who are the white hats? So think about those sort of Western movies. The white hats are the protagonists. They're the good guys. The black hats, the people in the cowboy movies with the black hat, they're the villains or the bad guys. And then we have the gray hats who are a mix of both. So as we move through this, I want you to stop and think about yourself. Who do you see yourself as? being in your professional light as a social marketer. So with white hat change agents or agents of change, this is probably the predominant sort of, I guess, identity that most of us align with. If you were to ask a social marketer, what do they do or why do they do it? They would describe themselves as an agent of change, that they're trying to find ways to better other people's lives and to bring about and make a difference really in the lives of other people. As a white hat agent of change, we increasingly are looking at the system around us, looking for the soft spots, looking for those high leverage points where a small change will result in a big difference that's around us. We see ourselves as helpers, doers, movers, as unfreezers. Which of these labels do you think resonates with you? How would you describe yourself as an agent of change? And do you see yourself firstly as an agent of change? Now, by way of provocation, I offer some questions that I'd like you to think about. As a white hat agent of change, are you really bringing about the change that you say you are? Are you actually building your career on the misfortunes of other people? And how do you square that up? 
Okay, how, how do you, it's up to you to square that up. I don't have an answer for you, but how do you square that up? Have you undertaken an intervention where you've actually caused harm or caused more harm to your vulnerable participants? And did you even acknowledge that to yourself? Did you acknowledge it to them? As a social marketer, were you attracted to this area because you're trying to right a wrong that was done to you? Or are you in this area because of the notion of being an agent of change is something that's seen as virtuous, where people will see you as someone noble? And the big question, have you benefited from the same systems that have created inequality for other people? Are you benefiting from the system that you're now trying to disrupt? And probably one that comes to my heart through own personal experience is, can you really relate to the experience of your participants if you've not had lived experience with the same issue? Are there limits to empathy? Can we really jump from project to project and topic to topic and really be deeply and authentically engaged in that topic? One of the other sort of, I guess, personas that I see is this white hat heroes. A big part of this has come about because there's a large number of social marketers. It's a fast growing area. And what's happening is social marketers seem to be creating this professional narrative of the hero. We're riding in on our horse to save the day. We've got the answer to behavioral change and just point us in the right direction and, and we'll show how this is done. But what we're starting to see with this professional hero narrative is everybody's using it. Are we all really heroes? Can we all be heroes? And is this an honest reflection of what we're doing? Are we creating this professional narrative as a point of you know, competitive advantage so that we'll get those grants and we'll build our careers? It's important to be really honest around this. Is this how we see ourselves? And are we really benevolent? And are we really trying to make a change in the world? And if we are, that's great. And that's honest and good. But sometimes I think it's important to question our own motives. So as a provocation, the idea here is to hold a mirror up to ourselves. We hold a mirror up to our participants. We hold a mirror up to the system. So it's important at this point, this sort of reckoning, moral reckoning, that we hold a mirror up to ourselves. I guess the questions I have around this white hat hero status that some social marketers adopt are questions around this sort of idea of is it possible that this social marketing hero narrative is doing us damage? Is it, a, is it in some cases false advertising? Are we telling people that we can change behaviours of anyone, anywhere, in any context? And is that true? Is that real? So I put these things forward because I think integrity and having that squaring up within yourself is really important. So we've looked at the white hats. That's one way that people and ourselves view uh, what we do as social marketers. So agents of change. Now the gray hat is different. The gray hat is an agent of the system. I put this up here because many of us create our research profiles, we undertake grants, but many of those grants are linked to political agendas of the day. They are short-term funding that are that doesn't lead to sustained, you know, long-term change that we say we're trying to create. And by chasing grant funding, are we actually becoming agents of the system? Because social marketing is linked to power, power is linked to politics, and hence social marketing and politics have become quite knitted together and empowered, uh, sorry, intertwined together. So I leave this thought with you because have social marketers become power, political power brokers? We think we're rebelling against the system, but through our chasing of grants and our using of external funding, are we actually advancing the system itself? Now the black hats. Now I put this up, like I said, this is a provocation. I put this up because I think this is something no one ever really talks about. And you know, you might be thinking or know somebody in this space, but I think we should talk about the black hats. You know, most social marketers, we see ourselves in this benevolent light as these white hat heroes, as, as, as the sort of person who's coming to make a change. And we come at this with all good intentions. But are there some amongst us 
who are secretly wanting to manipulate other people? Are there some amongst us that enjoy gaslighting? Is gaslighting present? Are we asking our participants to believe something different to their own lived reality? Social marketers possess an aptitude for asking questions. We're, we're keen observers of others, and we have this intuitive ability to create persuasive arguments to encourage positive behavior change. But can that fall into the wrong hands? Is there a potential for this master puppeteer for malevolent sort of behavior or malevolent approaches amongst us? Are there those amongst us who are master puppeteers? So I've presented a few observations around the, the sort of hackers that we have in the social marketing area, the white hat, the black hat and the gray hat. But this all comes down to you. Do you identify with any of those or multiples of those? How do you place yourself in terms of your position, your power and your privilege that you have? And do you understand how that inculcates or filters into the programs or interventions that you have? Now, what I've noticed, particularly for social marketers who've come from a business background, is that they bracket themselves. Often with social marketers, we're at arm's length to our participants. And sometimes we're at arm's length to the social cause that we're looking at because we haven't had lived experience in that space. So bracketing is a process where we don't position ourselves in terms of our power and privilege in relation to the participants or the social cause that we're looking at or working on. And this is really important because in any transformative profession, such as people who are working in counselling or in any of the health, health areas, they, they always will unbracket themselves and they'll always position themselves and be aware of their power and privilege. I think in social marketing, as social marketers, even as a part of our protocol when we're doing projects, it's probably a really important time to unbracket ourselves, to indicate who we are and where we fit relative to our participants. So it sort of leads into this idea of identity, not only about you figuring out which of these sort of heroes you fit with, but also about intersectionality. After all, we're a social science and we need to understand how our privilege or and, and domination perhaps as social marketing practitioners has an impact. So as I've got here on the slide, I'm asking you this question, where do you fit? Are you above the line in terms of some of, the, and I'll read some of the points that are there, um, in terms of perhaps being heterosexual, able-bodied, young, anglophone, or are you below the line? A person of colour, of non-European origin? Are you somebody who's of dark skin? The fear I have is that in social marketing, the practitioners are more above the line than below the line. And the people below the line are our participants. I don't have an answer, I just pop that out there. And that's what a part of, I guess, being a provocative talker is about. So I'll leave you to think about that. Is that something you see around you? Are social marketers privileged and are our participants fitting in this oppressive space? Now, another observation I've noticed is that we're very clear about who's sitting around the social marketer table. You know, are they people above the line? But who's missing from the social marketer table? And is that people of colour? And is that Indigenous peoples? Is it time now at this 50-year mark for us to decolonise social marketing? Is it time now to foreground the wisdom of First Nations peoples? Now, First Nations peoples are the original systems thinkers. And as an Indigenous person myself, as being of Aboriginal descent, I obviously can attest to that. So what we often see in the social marketing literature is this sort of dichotomy to, between what's called traditional thinking and social systems thinking. And I put forward that traditional thinking is actually Northern Western dominant thinking. It's based upon logical empiricism, cause and effect, straight lines that that, and we break things down into the individual component parts. Whereas systems thinking, my put forward, is First Nations thinking. It's about being, knowing, and understanding the world or the ontology or view of the world. 
I put this forward because I think that what we're seeing in social marketing is epistemicide or the systematic destruction of First Nations knowledges. And now is a great time to decolonize by giving respect in many ways to First Nations peoples and their ontologies, epistemologies and methodologies. The tools of the system thinker have always been and always will be a part of how First Nations peoples think, know and be. We are nonlinear thinkers. We think in wholes, in synthesis, in terms of networks and relationships. And these are all the things that we're promoting now as systems thinking. Very quickly, I wanted to share with you a project that we're just kicking off here that looks at decolonization. Very recently was successful with a grant that's about embedding indigenous knowledge approaches in Australian doctoral education. So unlike other countries, Australia has a monocultural approach to PhD research, and it overlooks indigenous migrant and refugee knowledge systems. What we're going to do in this particular project is not only acknowledge that there are multiple knowledge systems, but we're actually challenging the dominance of Northern Western scientific thinking. We're challenging logical empiricism that is ingrained in Australian research training. And why it matters is because this training determines the rules of what is proper knowledge and how proper knowledge is produced. We're going to achieve this in this project with a decolonization lens. And what we're going to do is reinstate and privilege First Nations and transcultural ways of knowing, being and doing. So that sort of brings me around to the end. I know there were lots of questions in there and it's a different type of presentation because it was meant to challenge and be provocative. But I leave you with this, this sort of parting pondering. This was a, a movie in Australia called Goldstone and one of the um, sort of part of the script was this and it, it caught me when I, when I first heard it. The system was not made for you, but you were made for the system. Just think about that. I'll leave it with you and I'll pass on now to my co-presenter, Professor Sharon Rundle-Teeley. Maria, thank you for that. There are so many questions there, some oh. of which I found myself answering you know, in terms of white hats and black hats. And I can see as part of my social marketing work where where all three hats come into play. We're going to hold on the questions and answers um, until we've heard from Sharon. So without further ado, Sharon, I will pass over to you. Thank you. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Social marketing is nearly 50 years old. And as we reflect on a past and look forward to a present, it's really like intent for all of us now to take time out and think about where we are. To change means we need to disrupt. If we want change, we can't keep doing what we've always done. And that inevitably means that any of the practice that we bring to bear must challenge. It hits people's biases. It makes and challenges assumptions. As Maria has spoken tonight, it makes us challenge who we are ourselves as individuals. We have to learn and think, or at least bring others in to the table because when people have a seat at the table, that is truly when you get a chance and an opportunity to see the change that you want to see. So tonight, I wanted to take a step and a journey forward and bring you into a space and a place to share some of the past and the future of where we've actually been. So social marketing has actually been operating for quite some time and our center really only came to bear very recently, 10 years ago. So our team have been working for some time, starting to look at what it is and what it does to enact behaviour change. When I started, I pointed out that we are actually standing on the shoulders of giants. There were so many in our field that had done a great deal of work to get us to the point where we started to actually look and see what we could bring to the table to help improve. Alan Andreasen had penned benchmark criteria, things that stood social marketing apart from other behavioural science fields. These factors in front of you then emerged with two more added by the National Social Marketing Centre in the UK. So eight things that social marketers should do. 
So one of the first jobs that our team did was started to actually look right across the field to understand the state of knowledge and have a really good close look at who, when they called themselves social marketers, had used what, where. And what we started to identify right across the behavioural context, whether it was food waste, healthy eating, smoking, tobacco, whatever you looked at, very few had actually used all eight of the benchmark foundational things. So then why is that important? Should we be concerned? In some of our very early work, we actually spread and looked across the different attributes used by some of the different campaigns. Now again, things calling themselves social marketing might indeed actually only be social advertising. In pure marketing terms, were we offering alternatives? Did we have something out there in the space and place as a true option that is different that someone could actually willingly and voluntarily choose to actually come forward? And what we started to see as we really thought about this was that so many programs remained very information based. We're telling people what to do, but we're not helping them. We're not actually offering anything that they can use. Now that's a little bit problematic because what the evidence review work showed so early on, and this has been replicated by many authors in different settings and contexts, is that behavior change happens more often when more of the benchmarks are used. So most recently, we had close to meta-analytic work demonstrating three of the attributes that actually increase rates of behavior change. When you look at using those eight, use more and you get more. So over 10 years, our team has tried to work to start to market marketing. It's actually a difficult thing because marketing is actually part strategy, like it's a philosophy. It requires centering people at the core. It requires understanding their differences and then looking for commonalities across people. Now it's a bit of an art. You have to be able to look, learn and listen and then adapt and move fast because other people copy you. So in a competitive world, you do something and your competitors copy so very quickly. Many of you would know that from the technologies that you buy. So philosophically, to start to break down a process and bring it forward to demonstrate how to actually build programs right from the start, we created a three-step process, CBE. Three steps applied over and over and over again. And so you see the wheel here to demonstrate that these things are happening serially over time. Now, I don't have time tonight to belabor and teach you the absolute intricacies, but we do offer training programs. We can come in and teach you how to actually apply in what sequence in. So depending on whether you're running a program for the first time or we're actually looking at and improving existing current things. So co-creation, some of you might've heard some pretty fancy terms. They're becoming incredibly popular. Design thinking, human-centered design, participatory design. I don't mind what you call some of these things. I do strongly recommend you learn them and you start to apply them all the time. For too long, as Maria pointed out, we've had very linear approaches. I'm an expert, I know best. They don't listen. They actually write their own surveys, confirm their own biases through data that comes back, demonstrating what they already thought they knew. What stands co-creative approaches out is that they require us challenging any of those assumptions by actually wiping the slate clean, starting with people, bringing them in on board right from the outset and empowering them to be the change agents we need them to be. Because you see, Maria's challenged us a little bit, funding short term partly political. So if you want to deliver lasting change, then you'd better figure out how you can build programs that people wanted in the first place and then empower them so that they can take them out and do them for themselves. So that is critical. So in our second phase, after we've learned what people actually want, we need to actually create the partnerships, build the processes or lobby for the policies needed to actually support change. So this requires a lot of time, energy, and getting people together. And the reason you want partnerships is because then you have more resources at hand. And with more people, you'll actually engage more people. The more you get, the more they start to actually talk for you. So the final phase of marketing, and the thing that we are always known best for, 
our advertising. It's the thing that everyone sees. And so many mistakenly believe that that's what marketing actually is. When in actual fact, it's just one tiny part of a very large puzzle. So in the engaged phase, we need to make sure that people know what we're doing and that we actually sell the program in a way that they actually wanted in the first place. So the CBE process shows you how to bring the philosophy into marketing. So recall, there were eight different things to do and they are mapped across that process. A paper will shortly be on its way. So a project that I was out in community continuing to work on today is Leave It. We've built this program over three and a half years. It is rolled out in one council area, delivering a reduction in koala deaths from dog attacks. And I don't know if you've heard, but our koalas are in dire peril. Recent bushfires in Australia decimated their populations. So the more we can do in a community to roll out the skills needed, the better off that community will be. So having built a program that can deliver the outcomes that people wanted to see with dog owners who willingly pay up and come to and do training, we've actually got the dog behaviours needed to protect koalas. There's a behaviour out there, it's called wildlife aversion. And you can see the rates of change as that program is gradually getting embedded into business as usual, right across one local government area. On the back of that success and assisting this population of koalas to grow, so who knows what the impact will be as we keep going forward, we decided that maybe what we really needed to do was help roll this out further. So which other local government areas and councils would like to actually now partner with us to actually think about ways that they can already use the assets built much cheaper, isn't it? And roll that out across their communities to do as they please. Now, some just love to buy a package off the shelf. Others love to choose and pick and mix all for themselves. So here is a way they can now leverage from learnings made by another team. And we're currently working to take that out Australia-wide. So that's one way of sustaining and building something that can last in a community, leveraging from it, continuing to create more partnerships, to continue to actually roll out on the success of that initial program. But that's not enough for our team because we understand that just looking at the individual level, what we would actually term a bit of a top-down approach is nowhere near enough. And that's where I referred to today's session. This week on Tuesday, a community rallied. They are so disappointed with the fact that a private property developer could demolish koala habitat. Now that creates problems and friction in a community when they're asked to do acts to support the koala. So we have to understand who else and what else we can bring together to try and put that policy in place to protect these koalas. Because it's not just the actions of dogs, it's so many other factors as well. So very important for us, maybe to take a wider view. And already Maria has spoken to you about a systems view. It is a very different way of thinking about and tackling a problem because a system is, a, it's, it exists. And I've recently written a blog about this. We inherit the systems around us. None of us asked for it, but are we prepared to act and change it? Too few that I encounter are. And I would challenge anyone who wants to be in the social marketing field that you really should take responsibility and adopt, whether it's Christine's rebel, as a you know, rebel of course, or some other mantra that keeps you prepared to actually ask the hard questions. Because we cannot accept status quo. It's not good enough. If we already know better, and indeed the science already is clear about what should be done across so many realms, why then aren't we prepared to do that and keep moving harder? COVID-19 showed us how fast we can switch around systems. So I would challenge all of us that we need that mindset now for some of the more and bigger problems that are actually killing more people on our planet than COVID-19. So there are ways that we can think about highly complex systems. We have to start somewhere. So can you bound and stick a boundary around the system, speak to experts and start to understand what their views actually are? one way of trying to start somewhere. Because as a novice, if you come in from the outside and you think you know how you're going to enact change, 
I would caution you, don't be naive. Get in there and learn because the faster you actually understand the complexity and you start to build that system view, the better you get at finding leverage points, areas that you can start to move and get quick gains and good gains to see the outcomes that perhaps we would like to see. So regardless of the problem, whether it's pesticides getting into waterways that damage heritage listed assets like the Great Barrier Reef or obesity or smoking, how do you get to work with people and challenge and get them to think and start to identify a path forward? Collective intelligence, or in our world, creating collective solutions, are ways that we can tackle systemic change and think with people from remarkably different backgrounds about how we indeed can challenge the status quo. Because it's no good to sit there and just accept that this keeps happening. Why not bring people together? Why not use this to set the funding outcomes and then start to actually encode this in the measures of success for any program being rolled out? This is the change that people want to see. So no more top down, let's start working together and get serious about making sure we start to see the change we want to see. Because when we use consensus processes and take people through a journey together, it is difficult for them to argue against what other people are saying. You see here, people are seeing their own words in response to one Why do we keep seeing pesticides in the waterways? Working together to point to the most important ones, like which ones do we really need to address? And giving people some freedom, a bit of democratic free voting. Here's your four bonus votes, put them wherever you want. It is a remarkably great way of bringing people along on a journey. With the biggest challenges identified through consensus, then people can be stepped through a process together to start to actually smash the things together. In this case, does a lack of knowledge about pesticides worsen people's lack of confidence to monitor? And here you see hands going up with the room voting yes or abstaining from a vote. This process again required consensus. Without an 80% agreement rate, we stopped, discussed and re-voted until we hit 80% to move forward. So that requires debate, that challenges people. And when you've got the governments who fund work, the people involved on ground who are growing crops and protecting them with chemicals, the industry that sells to them and other people with a strong vested interest in that space together, the conversation gets very heated. But they can work together and they can push for an outcome. And once you start to look at something like this, you end up with a clear action map. If we address chemical knowledge, we can help everything else move a lot faster. And when we talk about that, how long does that chemical actually really last in the, in the dirt before it leaches out into the waterway? Interesting questions that arise over time and a process that brings people together in a way that they become happy to share ideas. What are we going to do about it? Here you can see people challenged with what are the two things that you would recommend and do? And then they were set, told to get up, get around the room and start to share their ideas. Other design thinking methods are used. Put people into small groups with deliberately diverse people and challenge them to draw their own solution. And in the top screen, you can actually see a stream with interventions placed all the way down. So if anyone is familiar with the stream analogy of social marketing, a team that were very capable of drawing both top-down and bottom-up solutions, things that could happen right now, things that needed to happen and policies that needed to change. So this is something that you can do across all sorts of contexts. Doesn't matter here whether you work in environment or health. My second example here remains in the environmental space, but soon we'll be working with Asthma Australia to understand why they're not making enough prog progress in that space. So the same sorts of ideas getting rolled out and also in two communities in Queensland on sexual abuse, why aren't we seeing enough progress? What can we do about it now? So each individual is given a question, the same question, and they're invited to give up to five answers. 
For our fishing project to protect snapper and a fish called pearl perch, 239 stakeholders answered our one question, giving us a total of 923 priorities. We had to reduce that down ever so slightly. So where we had the same people saying reduce the bag limit to five, that was actually collapsed and they were all put together, leaving us with 481 unique priorities. That is a lot. That is Queenslanders very keen to do something about this. Many, many different things put up. Once again, we went through an incredibly long process to identify the top priorities. Many are policy related. There is strong support here in Queensland for a lot of change to protect these two fish so that they're here for the future generations. People enjoy catching them. No one wants to see them gone. We can actually, again, through a CCS process in a workshop, work with the teams, the different stakeholders from people in the fishing industry, charter boat operators, recreational fishers, the government and environmental lobbyists who are trying to protect them, and so many other people with vested interests in that industry, media, tourism. We can work with those stakeholders together and have them co-design solutions. This is the group that I facilitated, and this is the pilot program that Maria is going to see roll out on the Sunshine Coast from about April this year. So there will be a calendar and we will be promoting different fish species. We're going to try and shift people's attention away from a fish that needs a bit of a breather to other fish where there is plentiful stock and they can afford for people to actually be catching them for a while. We also worked with community. Here you can see influencers, recreational fishers, charter boat operators coming together and telling us what they would actually like to see. Here pictured is a co-designed outcome. Again, I'm not a fisherman and I don't ever want to pretend to be. But understanding them and what it's like for people like them is a very big part of the job that I do. And all that I see myself as is their voice. Can I help push to actually see the outcome that the people I serve are seeking to actually see? Otherwise, what's the point of all of this work in the first place? So if we can actually bring in a bit of a competitive element, and if we can actually improve the apps that tell people where else they can go to catch other things and work with the people who actually serve and show us what to do with fish, there is so much that we can actually do. So as our team works to actually start to roll out that pilot concept campaign, all we've done is spent time seeking to serve the people who've come together to tell us what it is that they want us to do, what it is that they wanted to see. You see, marketing is a process of exchange. If people and parties come together, outcomes that we all want to see can actually happen. But importantly, in social marketing practice, where the funding comes and goes, it's incumbent on all of us to think beyond the life of one project. How can we build capacity or what lasting alternative can we point people to to help support them to enact the change that they would like to see? I would love to thank you very much for coming in in my evening, your morning and other times of the day. It's been a pleasure to be here. And back to you, Christine. Sharon, thank you. How lucky are we? Whether you're new to social marketing and one of our MSc students, or whether you're a seasoned expert from the UK, Europe, America, or Australia, there is so much fodder there. There's so much food for thought and so many valuable tips and tools and techniques. What, and I have 101 questions, but I am going to refrain myself and I'm going to pass over to our audience. So we have from now until about 10.30 um, for a bit of a conversation to co-create what social marketing might look like as it goes forward over the next 50 years. And to do that, we've two mechanisms for you this morning, this afternoon, this evening. So you can use the question and answer box if you would like, or alternatively, you can raise your hands as well. Um, and I know we've already got some questions in. So Maria, one for you, and it's one I am asking myself too, um, is how can we as social marketers unpack our professional identity? Oh, 
great question, Christine. And I think a part of it is something that's used in other transformative services, such as education or in health. And that's what's called professional learning conversations. And it's probably something that we we don't really do, where we actually get together and talk about well, who we are and how we fit into our course. But we also air those sort of things that we hide down, like how do I square up that I didn't make as much change in a project that I thought I would? Um, how do I feel about my privilege and power when I'm working with people who are underprivileged and who are perhaps oppressed? So professional learning conversations are really just this discourse amongst each other and with each other um, to unpack how who we are and how we see ourselves as professionals. And look, it's quite common. I did a project many years ago um, in an education with education leaders, and we had a six-week project where we went through a series of questions about how we saw ourselves as leaders and what leadership was and how we could sort of move the dial or shift the dial in the way that we thought was next level or the next uh, appropriate step for us. Yeah, and that's very interesting because I think as social marketers, when we're working on projects, we have our team meetings and our project meetings, but it's all about doing, you know, the next level of activities and not necessarily about the being and the reflective component. So it strikes me, you know, I would have a lot of um, psychologists and counselors and therapy colleagues, and as part of their professional development, they engage in professional conversations like you're recommending. So it seems like that would be a great way forward, both ethically, responsibly, and also from a sustainable perspective too, that it gets you outside of your own world. Sharon? Sorry. So, yeah, I was just going to say it just requires vulnerability, which is where the, you know, that's sort of the barrier. <laughs> yeah, but I liked both of your comments about the pandemic. To some extent, the pandemic is bringing us into that territory. Um, to my mind, it's asking us to look at the vulnerabilities in our own lives and in our family and in work and then beyond ourselves as well. Sharon, I was going to invite you. Have you any tips to add to that? No. <laughs> okay. That's uh, it's, I, I think it's a question of where do we actually start? I mean, there's some fantastic questions um, that have come up in the Q&A feed that I think when Maria really works to provoke us, it is incumbent on all of us to think through our own processes been and keep challenging what we're currently doing for how can it be better because if we just keep basically celebrating the success and not operating with a really critical mindset I think we fail to grow and it's that constant challenging and, and willingness to critique and and push to say well at the end of the project when we come together and do our reflective piece um, and we do this in ours how can we go better and faster next time and how do we roll that across and how do we do it well um, because some of the, the role here is not just about challenging how things have been structured so far. I think we still have to keep pushing further forward to try and, I love to use in my case, the, the option of we're trying to make ourselves redundant sometimes. And if we've achieved that, I think we've, we've really celebrated success. That's a win. Yeah, I would certainly concur with that from our own work here, that you want to do yourself out of a job, which means you look at behavioural change, not as an event, not as a campaign or an intervention, but a process. And it's a lifelong process because a problem now in a system rectified or perhaps resolved doesn't mean that that system is going to stay perfect. In fact, it's not because of the different needs and wants and the conflicts that are there. Um, so I think you're right that that is part of our job is, is to leave that ability to empower people behind, certainly from my perspective. And linked to that, we have another great question coming in from Sinead, um, wondering if we have any tips for managing conflict during this consensus building process. Look, I can start with that, having been out doing exactly that this afternoon. Um, people are entitled to their views. I don't think we should be shutting anyone down. And at the same time, we should not just be letting the noisiest person in the room have all of the voice. So consensus means everybody got a say. It means you get one point 
everyone else gets one point before you get your next. So managing conflict requires strong facilitation and all sorts of capacity and strength to just make sure that you can manage the whole process that you're actually dealing with at the time. Um, I do think having a voice and being heard remains the most important thing and we can't shout something out just because we disagree with it. And Maria? Um, and I agree with what Sharon said. I, I think that reaching consensus, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's part of the tensions that we sort of face, but it is about also encouraging people who don't wish to speak up to have voice um, so that, you know, we're trying to avoid a bit of, uh, you know, people walking away and, and not necessarily having a good experience. I think I look at it from um, like with co creation and participatory approaches, which are very much Indigenous approaches um, to solving problems uh, and Indigenous methodologies that are used. And a part of that, and what, what Sharon does well and really great with, with her team, is this idea of actually having the participants build their self-determination by solving the problem themselves. And I think we've seen it so many times where other people have come in and particularly with indigenous communities in Australia, where the government or other stakeholders have said, no, this is the way it's going to work rather than hearing the voices and, and giving voice and visibility to the participants themselves. Because after all, if you're experiencing a problem, you've probably thought through the best solution uh, to come up with it as well. The next phase of that though is, is probably one that I think social marketing will move into, which is the co-implementation. I think we're still at that stage of co-creating the solution, but we're not co-implementing that sort of solution um, and allowing people to implement it in their own ways. So for example, in Indigenous communities, there may be a solution that's brought together, but then it's outsourced to an external agency who comes in to a remote community and says, "This is we're just going to implement this and operationalise it instead of actually using the people that are there um, to do it for themselves. So empowerment in that really deep sense that it's, it's also about giving people the power of self-determination to determine their own futures and also their own futures. And I think that's a very valuable point, Maria, because I think particularly, certainly kind of in Europe or in Western societies, we tend to overlook the lived experience. We tend to overlook the ability of communities when they're empowered to self-organize. Um, our next two questions are very interesting because we have a very seasoned social marketer and what we would call a newbie. So Jeff, you're very welcome, Jeff. Jeff Wrench is posing a question for Maria. Maria, are you saying that only those who come from a community can understand that community and work to support that community? Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> um, not really. I think I'm just posing the question about the role of lived experience uh, in this space and the role of APRO and how that experience, whether that creates better solutions that, uh, that stick around and create sustainable impacts. I think it's important to always stay local because if there are, I guess, knowledges that exist that are unspoken and unarticulated that those people in that community have about their ethos, the way people live and their values that don't aren't necessarily apparent to observers who are there for the short term. Look, I just think community participation matters. And I think that as social marketers, there may be limits to our empathy. There just may be limits to how far we can stretch ourselves to understand a community. And that's why I sort of put the question out there to sort of make people just stop and think about that sense of, you know, are people joining or accepting projects and being on projects that they don't have a lived experience in, um, that they don't really know about, and they just think they can jump in and in a short way come up with a solution um, that, that somehow is going to change behaviour as well. So I guess it's acknowledging the knowledge that sits within the community and also for the social marketer to acknowledge that there are limits to what we can do. We're human after all. I, I think that's that's a particularly interesting question or kind of perspective, Maria, too. And particularly here, we're seeing it, for example, with the EU and the EU grants that are available. And um, those grants for many social marketers, um, as you've already said, are a lifeline to the type of work that we do. But they can bring you into territories that you have no expertise, understanding or insight in. Um, so brings us back to our three hats, the white hat, the grey hat or the black hat. Thank you. 
And this might be one for Sharon. Sharon coming in from Neve, one of our current MSc students, and she's saying she would love to pursue a career in social marketing. And she says when she searches it, she finds that it's very often, as you've identified, social media marketing jobs. So given your team there, I'm wondering what tips you might pass on to Neve about a possible career in this area. Oh, there's many roles that are actually available. Um, certainly down under, we have uh, consultancy firms that are running implementation projects out there in community. We have the research agents who spend their time understanding, learning, uh, living with communities to actually figure out what's needed to actually do something. Um, there are some training programs. Jeff French tells me there are more to come. Um, so watch out for some of that. Um, certainly some of the people in our team have undertaken what we call higher degree research, um, but dedicated programs, studying under supervision to just gain that experience firsthand. And some of those graduates have left, you know, running programs, going out and on into industry to, to live the dream. So have a look around. There may be something you can actually take in straight up as an entry position or a future study path that you can take even through some of the MSc you're doing that may help you get there. Um, Maria, anything you would add? Not really. <laughs> I think that if, I think a part of it comes to, you know, as, as we've moved on, we've become um, more defined as a community, but I think there's always going to be sort of that um, conflation with with advertising and social media as well, that it goes out there. Um, but we nabbed the name first in terms of social marketing. And I think that's also why people refer to themselves as change agents or something uh, along different lines rather than as, as social marketers because there's a sort of misinterpretation that often occurs at the beginning. Um, but that said, it is still, you know, obviously communication is still a very big part of what we do and how we go about it. But it's also, I guess, the outcome is always focusing on actually bringing about behaviour change um, and, and shifting that dial. Thank you. So we have two very interesting questions from two different angles coming in relating, of all things, to COVID. Um, so Sean is coming in from the National Federation of Group Water Schemes, looking at water source protection projects here in the west of Ireland. And Sean is asking, like in times of COVID, and a lot we find that a lot of organisations are asking the same question, Sean, how do you effectively engage with groups? Sometimes, for example, elderly farmers who may not have broadband or may not be used to using Zoom or other forms of technology. John, I'm happy to answer that one for you. We actually got hit with that heavily um, in the COVID lockdowns in Australia. Uh, we got sent home like other people. Brisbane's been locked down twice. Um, our team basically were challenged with, well, how do we keep our projects running? Because doing nothing is not the answer. Um, we did actually take a lot of our methodologies online. Um, that still didn't prevent people who didn't have the skills from joining us online. So we had grandchildren sitting with grandpa so that he could actually be in the group and the child would be doing all the typing or shouldn't say child, but the young helper. Um, we had people dialing in through telephone so they could still talk. Um, there are ways still that you can take steps forward and connect. Someone on ground, if you're not in lockdown, can actually get there to do some of that talking and make sure that that person's still in the room. So that's just one way of sort of taking it head on. Um, Maria? And probably, yeah, probably mine comes from a different angle is that I think because what we do in social marketing is we're often researching in the, mar in the margins. We're working with people in the margins. So in Australia, for example, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are one of the most over-researched group. And they're also what's called a hard to reach group. Um, so in that sense that even when research is trying to be done, people are reluctant to give because there's a lot of uh, research that's done on Aboriginal people, not by, with or for Aboriginal people. So when the research focus becomes one that it, this is by an Indigenous or being led by an Indigenous person, it's for Indigenous communities and it's with, not to Indigenous communities, that, I guess, orientation is what is able to attract people to actually participate um, in research. Um, but it, it is not uncommon, for example, in remote communities that having seen 
you know, carload after carload of researcher come in, you know, every other week looking at trying to sort of um, a new research topic and just taking information but not giving it back. So in Indigenous research, um, reciprocity is really key. And when you can demonstrate reciprocity in your project that what you're giving, you're uh, sorry, what you're taking, you're also giving back, that's when a hard to reach group is more likely to engage. I didn't have any experience, unfortunately, with COVID and, and, and connecting with people online, but I think Sharon have provided some good ideas there. So, and we have loads more questions coming in through the Q&A as well. Um, we will feed your questions back to both of our eminent presenters, but we have hit um, the top of the hour, as they say. So my job now is to ask you to unmute yourselves, unmute yourselves, and we will count down from three to one. And I'd ask you to put your hands together and give Sharon and Maria a huge round of applause. Apart from working on a Friday night, and I am very grateful to both of you giving up your Friday evening, um, it's been an absolutely amazing kickstart to this series of webinars and some fascinating insights and tips uh, and a view, a window into what our future in social marketing looks like. So a huge thank you to Sharon, a huge thank you to Maria, and also behind the scenes, a very, very big thank you to Courtney. Courtney is a colleague here in the Whitaker Institute, and she's kept all of us in line and made all of this happen seamlessly. So Courtney, I'm also very grateful to you too. So on the count of three, unmute your phones and a big clap and a goodbye. Three, two, one. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Maria. Thanks, Sharon.